0: Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry.
1: We have two goals to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth.
0: What non traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates?
1: How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients?
0: What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry and what are companies doing about it?
1: So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And
0: remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers.
1: Welcome to this episode of the IPHO podcast. Today, we have Camille Pope on, who is the chief medical lead at Aclinate, which is a digital healthcare company leveraging innovative technology, community engagement, and pharmaceutical industry collaborations to improve clinical trial diversity. In this role, Camille uses her 15 plus years of pharmaceutical industry experience to oversee medical and scientific communications between community members, research sites, and pharmaceutical industry slash healthcare partners. So I want to just start with where you are, but maybe we can go into where you began. First of all, Camille, welcome to the show. And maybe you can help fill in uh, some of the gaps leading up to where you are now.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So I I graduated with my doctor of pharmacy degree from Florida A&M University. From there, I completed a postdoctoral fellowship with Rutgers and bristol Meyer Squibb, so I was a, a Rutgers fellow, um, and I completed a one-year fellowship in medical strategy, and I've spent the majority of my career in medical affairs roles. I've had several different medical affairs roles, and medical strategy is where it started I love I love medical affairs. I talk about it all the time. I feel like medical affairs is a great connecting function within an organization. You kind of get to talk to and work with everyone, um, and you are the make it make sense people. Regardless of what team you're working with or whether you're working with internal or external stakeholders, it's really your job in medical affairs to take that data that may be very complex and high level and break it down so that whoever your stakeholder, whatever stakeholder you're working with understands how they can leverage that data to do their jobs better. So if you're working with the marketing team, it's helping them understand, you know, what do the data mean? What is it going to mean for the healthcare providers they're trying to promote a drug to? How do you say things in a fair and balanced manner and still be scientifically accurate. If you're working with the regulatory affairs team, it might be helping them understand um, some of the key information from the data that you know should go into the label or that you would like to, you know, uh, try to work with the FDA to have in the label um, because it will help uh, providers be able to prescribe the medication because it's actually written in the USPI. And it may be, you know, communicating to external stakeholders like healthcare providers who need to understand how do I safely use this drug? How do I safely dose this drug? Um, what are the adverse events that I need to look out for? What do the efficacy endpoints that were outlined in the study, what do those results mean? So I absolutely like love the medical affairs function. So I, like I said, I started off in medical strategy and after I completed my fellowship, I moved on to a small biotech company called Abraxis that no longer exists. And that's something you learn in industry is that, you know, mergers and acquisitions happen. <laughs> um, but I was at a small biotech company in the scientific communications area, primarily focused on publications, but because it was a small company. I wore a lot of different hats, so there was, you know, a lot of publications, but also a little bit of med info. There was some medical strategy. There was, you know, medical review. Like all of that was kind of wrapped up into one position: a scientific communications manager. While I was um, at at that small uh, biotech company, and then I decided I wanted to work in the field. Um, I talked to a lot of students. And early career pharmacists who are interested in becoming medical science liaisons, and I was no different. So, um, after many, many, many interviews and <laughs> and honestly failed interviews, there are times that I did not get the job. I finally, finally landed an MSL gig, um, and so I moved to another small company as a medical science liaison. And at that point, I moved from New Jersey to the Washington D.C. area where I live now, and I started my career as an MSL. I honestly thought that I would like live and die as an MSL. It was my absolute dream job. And I, I did, I stayed in MSL for for many years. I had two MSL roles. My first one I liked, but I I will be very candid to say I didn't love. And I think part of that was the traveling that was required. I had a really big territory and I was on a plane every other week and I didn't realize that was going to be, you know, my situation. And I was like, oh man, okay, this isn't, you know, what I had planned for. I knew I was a lot of travel involved, but I wasn't too keen on being on an airplane so frequently. But quickly, uh, after landing that first MSL role and getting my feet wet as an MSL in the field, I identified another opportunity for a different MSL position at another company, um, AbbVie, in a therapeutic area that I was really passionate about at the time, HIV, which turned into HIV and hepatitis C. And the territory was much more manageable. And so i Loved that MSL role. I loved working at AbbVie. I had a a great team. Shout out to my old MSL team at AbbVie. I still keep in touch with a lot of those folks. And I I enjoyed being in the field as a medical science liaison, being that primary communicator of key data to the healthcare providers in my region, and being like that go-to person. I just thought it was so cool. I thought it was super cool that the you know. Key opinion leader who wrote the infectious disease guidelines for HIV and hepatitis C would, you know, call me up and ask ask me for my opinion on the data. I'm like, you know, little old me? Like, yes. I thought it was amazing um, that there was this role out there where you could provide value to even the, you know, smartest, top-notch researchers in the world and help them to be able to correctly view your data and safely and effectively use your drugs. But eventually, I got the itch to go back in-house into a medical strategy position where I had initially started my career. I was living, again, in the Washington, D.C. area at the time, and there aren't that many pharmaceutical companies here in the D.C. area, but there's AstraZeneca, which was not too far from me. Um, and so through networking and, and sharing my um, desire to switch back into an in-house role with mentees, mentors, and, and people who I knew at AZ, I was able to land an in-house medical affairs position at AZ. Um, and so uh, I, I switched therapeutic areas. I went into oncology and I was a medical director and a medical lead um, at AstraZeneca for about five years. Um, primarily focused on prostate cancer, but I also had other tumor types that, you know, were kind of on my plate, depending on the the workload, which was cool because I got to learn um, different tumor types and work with different teams over my time there. And then what really led me to the role I have now um, at Aclinate was getting involved in the health equity work at AstraZeneca on top of my day job as a medical lead. Um, I was working in a therapeutic area where people who look like me, you know, Black women have Black family members, Black men, Black uh, men in my family, husband, father, brother. I knew that health outcomes for uh, patients with prostate cancer could be worse for Black men. Yet, I saw that across all clinical trials, um, at you know across all the different companies, was, we weren't represented in those studies. And there were other tumor areas where we weren't represented well either. And so um, that drove me to participate and eventually co-lead a clinical trials diversity work stream. Um, I was also and am still also really passionate about bringing inclusive and diverse talent into organizations um, because you need people with different backgrounds and different perspectives to raise that red flag and be the squeaky wheel sometimes when, you know, you're thinking about how are you going to market a drug or what language you're going to use in a piece or how that protocol is going to be written. And so I also started an inclusion and diversity talent work stream at AstraZeneca and Oncology Medical Affairs which, again, the whole purpose was to bring in um, different talent than what we were seeing on our team at that time. And it was through that work that I thought, oh, man, you know, I've got all this medical affairs experience, but I would love to take it and use it more fully in the health equity space. And that is what led me to acclinate. And so I left AstraZeneca. I, like, took this leap in my career to work for a company that does the health equity and inclusive research work like full time. And I'm able to use all of my medical affairs skills to build out the medical strategy for this company and thinking about how do we work with different pharmaceutical companies? How do we think about study protocols? And what does that look like once it gets into clinical trial sites? What other clinical trial sites should uh, companies be considering besides the the main ones that we always use? What about those that are in the community that actually see the diverse patients that you're trying to get into the studies? And then how do we actually access and engage those communities? How are we boots on the ground, leveraging trusted messengers to amplify uh, messages around clinical research and the importance of being involved? And how are we using technology to do that as well? So that's, I feel like I talked a lot, but that's my background. That's how I got here.
1: Well, I have so many questions, starting with, you know, you left you left New Jersey, so is, is it Tellerham ham, egg and cheese, or is it pork roll, egg and cheese? <laughs> but anyway, something I heard that I, I didn't pick up on until you said it was you started your career in fellowship, your first role, you experienced a merger and acquisition. So, can we talk about that a little bit? What type of what type of experience was that for someone who's listening and going, "Oh, okay," because we, we talk about there's change in industry all the time. But mm-hmm. as soon as you said it, I went on Google and I go uh, Braxis acquisition, and I saw what happened. <laughs> and and it's and so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Tell us about your experience with that.
2: Oh man, I've had a lot of experiences with that. And one of the things I tell people is like, that's industry, it's going to happen. If you're doing your job and you're doing your job well, you'll be okay. So I try not to stress out about it. When I was at Abraxis before I, I left and I went to Cephalon, was my first MSL job. Abraxis was bought by Celgene. And then Celgene, you know, long time down the road, got bought by BMS. And it certainly was a bit nerve wracking early in my career because, you know, Kind of knew that the company was going to be acquired soon. We just didn't know by who. But at the end of the day, I was just like, you know, it, it, can I stop it from happening? No. <laughs> like I wasn't at that level. Um, so I'm going to continue to do my job, do my job well. I was interested in being an MSL and I knew that I was probably going to be transitioning away from Abraxas anyway. And so it just so happened that right around that same time that the acquisition happened, I was on my way out and leaving Abraxis. But that experience of kind of not knowing and it being nerve wracking, I certainly, you know, I I felt that. I felt that when I was um, uh, when I was in the situation. Then when I went to Cephalon, it's like the same thing happened. Cephalon got bought by Teva very shortly after (laughs) after I became an MSL. And that also kind of freaked me out because I was like, I've moved from New Jersey to D.C. Now I'm from the D.C. area. So, you know, I'm like home but i had moved for this job and the company that i'm working for is now getting bought like what is going to happen but the benefit of having a network was that i was able to identify an opportunity it was just the planets align i identified an opportunity and someone who i had kept in touch with and who was still a mentor to me to this day um, came to me around that same time and said you know i've got a position open on my team do you know anybody who might be interested in applying? I was like, yeah, me. And that's how I ended up at AbbVie. And then just to be clear, when I started at, Abb- at AbbVie, it wasn't AbbVie. It was Abbott.
1: I'm noticing a trend here.
2: Yeah, I, and I thought the same thing. I was like, everywhere I go, either there's a merger or an acquisition or some, there's a spin out. And I thought, is it me? But you know what? By the time I was at Abbott and it spun out into, you know, AbbVie spun out into this new company, I was so used to like kind of those changes that it didn't bother me as much. Um, And I actually looked at it as an opportunity. I thought, oh my gosh, I get to be part of like the start of a brand new company. I mean, I remember when the name AbbVie was decided and like why they chose that name and you know, it was really having the opportunity to be part of something new. I had many team members who had been long standing, avid employees and they were worried and nervous. Um, and it felt good that I was able to quell their fears and say, you know, have been through this twice already. We're OK. Right. Like Abby's going to spin out. We're all going to be at employees and we'll be able to, you know, be at the ground level starting this new company. Um, but it was definitely. Um, yeah, it's an interesting trend for a while there in my career.
0: Well, I'm, I picked up on what you said about the planets having to align for, for some of these roles mm-hmm. that you've gotten over time. And I, I felt that way too. I, I went through a reorganization that resulted in my position being eliminated and like going through it, it was like the most stressful experience. I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Um, but it ended up being probably the biggest and best inflection point in, in my career going from you know, eight years of consumer health experience into oncology of, of all places. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, especially at this time of year when everybody's, you know, thinking about career development and individual development plans, it feels like, you know, there, there's a certain amount that happens in our careers that's um, out of our control. It's the plan, it's it's serendipity, but a fair amount of it is also the result of deliberate planning. And so I'm just curious, you know, as you approached your career development, how much of it was intentional? What role did your mentors play? You know, beyond the things that that happened. You know, like the acquisitions.
2: Yes, I definitely tried to always think ahead about well, what's next for me. Um, My goal in every role was to be excellent and master that role, and that's what I, you know, tell my mentees. I'm like, you know, don't go asking for a promotion and you're mediocre in your current role. You need to, you need to be good in what you're currently doing before you start. I mean, you know, that's, that's not always true, but I mean, I, I do feel like sometimes folks just want to, you know, jump, what is it, leapfrog and kind of jump from thing to thing to thing. And I'm like, but you're not, you want to be able to say and show that you have provided value in a meaningful way. And sometimes it takes it takes time to build that skill set. It might not take a lot of time, but you need to be like focused on Two things, mastering your current role and then also thinking and what are the skills I need to get in my current role to help me go to where I want to go next. Have those two things in mind, but don't just, you know, always think about well, what are the other skills I need to move on and you're like doing a horrible job in the role that you have now if you can help it. So yeah, I definitely uh planned ahead. I knew I wanted to be an MSL, you know, back when I was a scientific communications manager. And it was a, a tough role at the time to get because, you know, it, I didn't have MSL experience. And you often hear that from the recruiters of the hiring managers. Oh, we want somebody with experience. But you're like, well, if nobody's willing to give me the experience that I need to get the experience. How am I supposed to get the job where I need the experience? And so in that regard, I looked to my network to help me. I looked to people who I knew were already in the field as MSLs. Um, I actually, you know, shout out to Dr. James Alexander, who is the founder of IPHO. Mm -hmm. I remember calling him up and we had a list of Rutgers alumni at the time. And he literally sent me that list and on a phone call, walked with me through the list and like picked out people that I needed to call and gave me their phone numbers. I was like, reach out to someone so. So I used mentors and people who I knew who could connect me and give me not just job leads, but tips on how to think like an MSL, the types of projects I needed to do in my current role so that I could put them on my CV, the types of experience I needed to get working with MSLs at my current company. Um, so that I would be a good candidate for those jobs. Um, you know, and even still, as I said, there were several MSL roles that I interviewed for and I didn't get them. But there was one, the one that I ended up with at AbbVie, where I stayed in touch with the hiring manager because I liked her so much, you know. I had applied for a position with Abbott slash AbbVie several times and didn't get it. But I I adored the hiring manager. I thought that she was, she was a PharmD. She was just, uh, you know... A, amazing. And I could tell that she was very good at what she did. And I thought, that's somebody I need to stay connected with. And so I did. You know, I asked her for feedback on how I could do better on my next MSL interviews. And I asked her if I could stay in touch with her. And she said yes. And throughout the time that I was interviewing with other companies for other MSL roles, she would put me in contact with the MSLs on her current team and say, well, talk to so-and-so about you know, how he goes about managing relationships with key opinion leaders and how he would communicate that during an interview and, you know, presentation skills. And, and I mean, it was just amazing. So, again, it's it's this serendipity, the planets aligning when it was time for me to look for another MSL job, because my first one was probably going to get eliminated due to the acquisition of Cephalon. She reached out to me and said, hey, you know, and I was living in the territory where I wanted to work before I was still living in New Jersey, but I had moved to D.C. And she was like, I see you moved to D.C. I see you got some MSL experience. I have an opening on my team, and it, she asked me if I wanted to interview, and I, I ended up landing the job, and I'm still close with her to this day. So that just shows the importance of like networking as you're thinking about planning out your career steps, staying in touch with people who you feel like can give you that advice and that guidance and connect you with those who can you know, help you get to where you need to go. The same thing happened when I transitioned to AstraZeneca. I knew I wanted to go in-house into a medical strategy position, and I had a friend at AstraZeneca who worked in regulatory affairs, and many years prior to me wanting to go to AZ, I had kind of served as a mentor to her when she was interested in fellowship, and we stayed in touch. So, you know, I had served as a mentor to her years back, and then when it was time for me to transition to a new position, when I reached out to her, she totally was like, Oh, yeah, I'll have my eye out for positions at AZ. Um, And, you know, lo and behold, a few weeks later, she was coming back to me and saying, like, I've got a friend in medical affairs and oncology. They've got a position open. Send me your CV. I'll make sure it gets on the hiring manager's desk. Right. But that all stemmed from me maintaining a friendship and a relationship with her after, you know, I had served as her mentor before, you know, it it flipped the script. It was a very mutually beneficial relationship and friendship. And it ended up with me at AZ. So I certainly planned. I shared with people what I wanted to do. That's what I, I, I tell folks all the time. Like, You got to tell people where you're trying to go in your career so that when opportunities do arise, you can be at the top of mind and they can think of you and say your name in rooms that you might not be in. And so that's how you plan. Do well in your current role so that people don't have anything horrible to say about like your work ethic and what the product that you produce and your value, but also tell people where you're trying to go so that when these opportunities come into their line of sight, they can think of you and put your name out there.
0: Amazing advice. And I, I like how you, you frame that because I, I think too often people are reluctant to admit where they may want to go in their careers. Like I want to be head of r and D, I I want to be a CMO, I want to be a CEO or whatever. And it's like, you know, if that's what you aspire to, then be clear about it. And then people can help you along the way if you build that network and if we needed any more evidence for the importance of networking, you know, some great examples that you provided. I think the other thing I heard, you know, what you said is repeatedly you maximizing the opportunity that you've been given over time and that set yourself up for success, you know, and and where you Mm -hmm. currently are. But I think for many folks, you know, just getting that opportunity is still a struggle and there isn't that equitable access to to opportunity for everybody. And so Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit more about the work that you're doing to support talent pipelines, you know, whether it's at the student level, the fellow level, or now in your current role, you know, what, what are the steps that you've been taking to, to try to provide equitable access to, to opportunity for others to maximize?
2: Sure. So I think there are formal ways that you can do this and there are informal ways. In an in informal way, i serve. I guess, as a mentor to a lot of different people. For the most part, I don't turn down anyone who wants to, and I know I might be setting myself up because <laughs> I'm on like, this podcast, but I don't turn down people who are interested in talking to me about my career journey. I feel like, you know, it's my duty to share and to give back and talk about, you know, what my challenges and barriers were so that People don't make those same mistakes or they look out for those things. And to also share opportunities with others, especially those who may be underrepresented in pharmaceutical industry, like Black students or those who are early in their career who are you know not of the majority population. So that's more of an informal thing that I've kind of always done. In a more formal way, um, when I was at AstraZeneca, I, again, I identified this need for us to diversify our talent pipeline. And so I created a work stream with, you know, buy-in from our senior leadership and, you know, had to find the funds, but we did it. And, you know, recruited other volunteers who, you know, also very diverse, you know, not just black and not just latina but everybody anybody and everybody in u.s oncology medical affairs at az who was interested in a diversified talent pipeline i was like come along this journey with me we're going to figure this thing out and we created programs that you know still exist to this day an example of one is the astrazeneca howard university PharmD d phd fellowship um I knew about fellowship programs. I I was a Rutgers fellow. I was a Rutgers preceptor while I was at AstraZeneca. I also was familiar with other fellowship programs like the FAMU BMS fellowship program that was, you know, specifically targeted partnership with an HBCU. And I thought, well, Howard University is like right down the street from AstraZeneca. It's 30 minutes away. There's no reason why we shouldn't have, you know, a tighter relationship with this university. And since I knew people working at the pharmacy school, I reached out and said, I got an idea. And you know, through working with them, working with the volunteers at AZ who joined the committee, and again, the support of our leadership team, we created a PharmD fellowship for Howard University students. And then we wanted to do something a little bit different. So hearing the unmet need from PhDs who work in industry, who will always tell us, man, these D fellowship programs are great. I wish I had something like that as a PhD candidate. We thought, well, why don't we add a PhD element to it too? We could have two fellows, a D and a PhD, right? So we created something like that, um, but specifically targeted to a historically Black college university so that we were tapping into talent that was going to be more diverse than what we typically saw coming into the company. We also set up scholarship programs. We partnered with a third party a foundation that specifically, again, focused on HBCU students and um, created an AstraZeneca scholarship program through that organization. We had a mentorship program. There were, there, we came up with like five different initiatives that, as a committee, we thought would have the most return on investment because we felt like, okay, if these programs are successful, then the students or the early career pharmacists who are benefiting from these programs, you know, will probably, if they have the opportunity, stay at AstraZeneca and feed into that AstraZeneca pipeline. And so we had to make that case to leadership. So again, it's all about having a plan, all about being strategic and like tying it back to the business and presenting that case to leadership so that we could get the funding for it. The other thing I'll say, though, is it's important to not just think about the, the entry level talent pipeline, but to also think about what programs are in place within the organization to help those who, you know, don't experience that ability to equitably rise to the top and rise to leadership positions and decision making positions. What do those pathways look like within industry? And so while I didn't implement any programs like that at AstraZeneca, I was always pretty vocal about making sure that those types of programs were a focus for the organization and I had an opportunity to participate in several like leadership development programs at AZ so those are some of the things that I've I've done and continue to do
1: amazing well you took that experience and it's i mean outside looking in you tell us but it seems like you took some of that experience and brought it into your next role which is where you are now, and I've been in the only in the pharmaceutical industry. I haven't, I haven't moved outside of. You were in the pharmaceutical industry for 15 years and you made the decision in your most recent role to move outside of pharmaceutical industry. It's still involved, heavily involved, right? Um, and informed by your prior experience. But can you talk to us a little bit about that decision-making process and how those first 15 years of your career are gonna influence the next 15 years, perhaps?
2: Certainly. Yeah, I like to say that I'm industry adjacent now. So I'm not, I'm not you know, totally removed from industry. And it, I don't work at one pharmaceutical company, but I work for an organization that partners with several pharmaceutical companies. Like our aim is to focus uh, on different research sponsors. So it actually is, you know, it's kind of eye opening because as you start to, um, you know, work with different companies on their clinical trial diversity initiatives and you see you know how far along they are and you have an opportunity to give you know input on let's say their diversity plans cuz yes the FDA is you know requesting those now it's a guidance but you know it's, it's not a requirement but it is a strong recommendation from the FDA that these diversity plans around clinical trials be in place you get to meet more people and, you know, again, just see how different companies, big and small, biotech, mid-sized, traditional pharma, like how they work, how they think about the problem, how folks in different functions and different therapeutic areas think about the problem and bring the wisdom gained. So I feel like I'm able to bring my wisdom gained from my years in medical affairs to the issue when we are talking to different research sponsors that are interested in working with us at Acclinate. And I think that's really cool because it's, again, it's like connecting the dots and being able to share that sentiment of the lack of diversity in clinical trials is not just a clinical operations issue. And I, I have stories that I will not share on this, on this podcast because it probably take too long, but, you know, I know from experience that. It impacts the entire business. It impacts clinical development, regulatory, medical affairs, marketing. And like at the end of the day, if your drug isn't approved because your trials weren't representative of the correct, I guess, uh, proportion of the population in the real world, or if your drug is approved and then you have to do a post-marketing commitment because the FDA is like, yeah, it's a great study, great results, but we need you to incl- include more uh, you know, Black and Latinx patients. Or, you know, if your marketing team is trying to market to a specific population, but they know that their sales reps are going to get hit with that question from physicians, like, well, how many Black patients were in the study? Because the majority of my patients are Black, and like, there were none. that impacts the business, and it impacts the ability of these drugs to get to who needs them most, which is the patients. And so it's that enterprise thinking that I have learned along the way in my 15 years of medical affairs that I'm able to apply to my current role. And I'm able to help, you know, those in my company at Aclinate kind of see the business in that way. Some of them don't have pharmaceutical industry. So I find myself kind of being like that go-to person to just explain like, this is how industry works, right? This, this is my experience. But then also in partnering with pharmaceutical companies and like sharing those sentiments and opening the eyes of folks who actually work in the companies and saying, no, 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 no. Like, this is more than just a ClinOps problem. These are the other people we should be engaging um, when it comes to clinical trial diversity. Have you talked to your MSLs? Do you get, you know, input from them on the clinical trial sites? And and why not? And why do you not consider their recommendations? They know their communities better than anyone. They're in the field all the time, right? And just bringing that like knowledge and experience to my current role, it's I find it quite useful. And also thinking about how to create a medical strategy, how to think through a plan. I mean, that is something that I've had a lot of experience doing at AstraZeneca. And it's something that I do now for my entire company. How do we apply a... Sound medical strategy to how we engage community members? How do we apply a sound medical strategy to how we engage our pharmaceutical industry partners? How do we apply a sound medical strategy to how we use our technology? And I'm not the tech guru, but I work with our VP of technology to think through, you know, The different factors that should be included in our AI algorithms, things like that from a medical perspective and a social determinants of health perspective. So all of that is being used in my current role and I I don't see that changing anytime soon. It's pretty cool.
0: Camille, that sounds like absolutely amazing work, and they're, they're lucky to have you. Um, it's been such a pleasure and such a joy, you know, to hear about your career journey and, and the impact that you've been able to have in, in every organization that you've been a part of. And um, I know, I think I speak on behalf of Alex as well. We're really looking forward to seeing the impact you'll have in this role and having you back on the podcast to hear how things are going. Um, you know, I think you provided uh, just a ton of uh, amazing insights Um, for our listeners and folks who can aspire, you know, to the the types of accomplishments that, that you've had over your career. So thanks for joining us tonight. And we look forward to having you back on the show real soon.
2: Thank you so much for having
0: me. This was great.